What a joyful occasion this is, and what a privilege to address you on this special morning. We are here as God's people to hear God's Word. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, it's toward the end. 1 Peter chapter 5. Chapter numbers are the large numbers, verse numbers are the small numbers after that. We're going to look at the first four verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Peter writes, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, this is a well-known passage. Many of you have studied it. No doubt, Garrett, you have looked at this passage and considered it. As we meditate on it, we understand more of what it means to be a pastor. We feel the weight of it. We even see something of, of how to do it. And all these matters interest us, especially this morning. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, let me just say on behalf of this dear congregation, you're very welcome here. Uh, You're welcome to come every Sunday. Uh, We don't normally have a service here where a new pastor is installed. It's a very rare thing in the life of a church. And so the, the special nature of this sermon is not what you'll normally hear. I think next Sunday Garrett's planning to begin expounding the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So a wonderful time to begin coming is right now in the life of this church. But these verses and our meditations on them may help even you, if you're not a Christian, with unusual quickness and clarity to get a taste for what it means to follow Christ, to see what a Christian church is. God is holy and perfect. He's made all of us in His image. But we have rejected Him in choosing to live like we want rather than He wants. That's what the Bible calls sin. And God, in His amazing love, though He had every right simply to judge every one of us, has instead sent His only begotten Son to take on flesh, to live a perfect life. Jesus of Nazareth was fully human and yet also fully God incarnate. He lived a life of perfect trust in His Heavenly Father, of perfect obedience, and He died then on the cross. I'm sure you've heard of the cross. He died then crucified as a sacrifice to take the place that you and I should be in. He died so that we would be able to be forgiven. God raised him from the dead for our justification, we read in the Bible. So that for all of us he's done this. All of us who will repent of our sins, turn from them, and trust in him alone. Friend, if you're not a Christian, that's what Christianity is all about. That's what this church is all about. And that's what Garrett, the new pastor's ministry, will be about starting from next Sunday. So if you come back, you'll hear more about that every Sunday you come. 
But this subject of the ministry particularly interests Christians. Anything that gives us examples of how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and pastors are supposed to be examples for people to follow in following Christ. Anything that does that helps us. So if we're really Christians, we want to follow Christ, and we are anxious to get anything that will help us to do that. Even more, though, than merely Christians, our topic is of interest to church members. Of course, normally all Christians will be members of a local gospel-preaching church near them. They will meet together regularly with these brothers and sisters for edification and encouragement. But we know that some Christians today have been poorly taught on this. They don't know they're to do it, though I think something inside them tells them they should. Others have knowingly, sinfully neglected such a commitment. But leaving them aside, normally, for the most part, Christians know that they're to be members of churches, and they are. And for church members, few topics could be more significant than what those who lead them are commanded by God's Word to be and do. To do for the glory of God and for their own good. And if such interest typifies all church members, how much more the members of this particular local church this morning? After years of halting faithfulness, through times thick with trials and thin on help, God seems to be answering the prayers that so many have prayed for so long. And surely on this morning, your ears are eager to hear how it is that you may honor and bless the Lord today in your life together here. Surely you have great interest in knowing what God's Word tells you of the one who will lead you, of the one who is called to be your pastor, what he's to do, what he's to be like, what he is to aspire to. So it's good for you, church, to know your pastor's job description so that you can keep him accountable, so that you can encourage him in the good things and to provide for him and to pray for him and to assist him. And even finally, when that time comes, so you'll know who to replace him. One member that this topic is of special significance to is Garrett's wife, Carrie. We're talking about pastoral ministry this morning. And you, dear sister, are called in a unique way to co-labor with Garrett. Now, you married him when he was already a pastor. So more than a lot of wives whose husbands end up becoming pastors, you kind of knew what you were signing up for. You not only knew Garrett, which is itself an extraordinary thing, but you knew Garrett as a pastor. So God has made you to be his wife, and he calls you to be faithful alongside of him. Now God calls you again to take that very specific role as the one who has the chief care of the pastor of the congregation. What a role God has given you, that he has given you the chief care of the pastor of this congregation. I pray that God will strengthen you for the task and that he will strengthen you through the task. Of course, this passage you'll note there in verse 1 is about the elders among you. Notice that S, elders. That's in the plural. I just want to make clear, in and of itself, that tells us nothing about the plurality of elders in one local church. 
You'll remember Peter, back in, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 1, this letter was written to Christians scattered across a wide area of modern-day Turkey in many local churches. But we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, like the letter to James or Acts chapter 20 or Titus chapter 1, that it was typical for the churches in the New Testament to have a number of men serving as elders and in God's kindness, as we saw just a few moments ago from the the brothers standing up here, that's your situation as a church. You have a number of men serving you as elders in this local congregation. And brother elders... How absorbing must this topic be to you? God has called you all to the pastoral ministry in this church. You all must shepherd this congregation. You all are charged by God here to do this. These warnings are yours. These charges are yours. These hopes are yours. But as much as they interest even this group of godly men, they interest Garrett more than anyone else. Because practically, this charge will fall especially on him. His leadership of the elders by counsel and prayer, by training and time, his leadership of this congregation will have much to do with the prosperity of this eldership and of this congregation. The other elders have other jobs and their elders. Yet, Garrett, you have felt called by God, and this congregation has agreed, and they've just vowed to support you in this, to make your work, your job, being the pastor of this church. That sets you apart from the other elders. You bear a unique responsibility. You will have unique opportunities as you teach this church from week to week. Yours will be a special burden. I want us in this time to consider some of the practical faithfulnesses that Garrett especially is now being called to as the pastor of this church. Before we do this, let me just make sure we notice the most important thing about our passage. It's there in verse 4. Peter writes of Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. You can tell Jesus is the good shepherd because good shepherd, a good leader, lays down his life for the sheep, as Jesus taught in John 10. And Paul, may I simply take a moment, I don't mean Paul the apostle, I mean Paul sitting here on the front row staring at his iPad. Your Bible, no, no, I understand, brother. I just want to simply take a moment to commend you out of love for God and for these people you have voluntarily supplied this congregation's need for God's word preached to them for years you and your wife have given yourself for this congregation take hope from verse 4 look down at verse 4 again that when the chief shepherd appears and that doesn't mean Garrett When Jesus Christ appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. The ancient Greeks saw the pelican beat its breast when it was feeding its young. 
and they mistakenly thought that the pelican was plucking its breast so that its blood would come out and that its young were fed on its blood. The early Christians adopted this as a picture for what Christ has done for Christians, that he has fed us and given us life by his own blood. He's given himself for us. This is what a good leader, a good shepherd, a good pastor does. He lays down his life for his sheep. We've read of pastors doing this. We've heard of pastors doing this. We've seen pastors in imitation of Jesus Christ doing just this. But these are the the years, these are the days, this is the place where you must do this, Garrett. It all gets very practical, doesn't it? To that end, in our time together this morning, I simply want to share with you all some reflections on four crucial aspects, four crucial aspects of pastoral ministry. And I pray that as I do, you'll be especially reminded and encouraged and that this church will be built up. I'm going to refer to a lot of different verses. Garrett will start next week with a normal, regular expositional ministry like you're used to. But he and I discussed, and we thought that a topical message might be appropriate for this special time together. So, four simple points. Number one, preaching. Number one, preaching. When I interviewed with the pulpit committee at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I said that I was happy to see every aspect of my public ministry fail if it needed to, except for the public preaching of God's Word. Now, that, that's a, a strange kind of thing for a prospective pastoral candidate to say to a church, I admit. But I just wanted to make it really clear from the outset that there is only one thing that is biblically necessary for the building of the church, and that is the preached Word of God. That's what God's Spirit has promised to accompany and make fruitful. Everything else that pastors are made busy doing could be done by other people. But in that case, stepping into that situation, I knew that I was to be specially responsible. I had been set apart by the congregation for the public teaching of God's Word. Unlike the situation here, there were no other recognized elders at the time, so I was kind of it. You guys are in a much richer position. The Word of God would be the fountain of any spiritual life we would have. It's true for us as individuals. It's true in our congregations. God's Word has always been His chosen instrument to create, to convict, to convert, to conform His people. God uses His Word to create faith in the first place. Think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. These verses I'm going to give you are going to be good ones for you to take down, pray for, for Garrett, and for your own life. The word performs God's work in believers. The very well-known Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word gives new birth. James chapter 1, verse 21. James advises, in humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your soul. God's Word is the instrument He uses to save us. 
Peter also claims regenerating power for God's word earlier in this very letter in chapter 1, verse 23, when he writes, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word which was preached to you. So, friends, this is just something of the creating, conforming, life-giving power there is in God's Word. The gospel is God's way of giving life to dead sinners, to dead churches. How many churches are there in the D.C. area that are empty? And they're empty often because the gospel has not been preached. Let's pray together that what we're seeing happen here happens at church after church after church in the D.C. area, filled with people who are preaching God's Word. Read Ezekiel 37 for encouragement in this, that vision of the valley of the dry bones. God doesn't have another way He does this. This is the way He has chosen to work. So if you want to work for renewed life and health and holiness in your church, then you must work for it according to God's revealed mode of operation. Otherwise, you risk running in vain. God's Word is His supernatural power for accomplishing His supernatural work. That's why... Our eloquence, our innovations, our programs are so much less important than we think. That's why we as pastors must give ourselves to preaching, not to programs. That's why we need to be teaching our congregations to value God's Word over programs. Preaching the content and the intent of God's Word is what God uses to call and to build His people. God's Word builds His church. So preaching His gospel is primary. One thing that means for you, Garrett, is that you must give yourself to the study of God's Word. So when you think you've got a free afternoon, maybe it's not a free afternoon. Maybe God has intended you to get to grips with a portion of His Word that you haven't studied enough yet. Pray that God give you diligence in this. We ministers of God's Word must give ourselves faithfully to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures and such studies as may help us to know and understand them better, as Garrett has just vowed to do. What did Paul say to Timothy? Preach the Word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Congregation, I call upon you to require Garrett to fulfill his ministry in this way. Require it of him. Ask about it. Encourage him in it. Pray for him in his preaching. Garrett, give yourself to preaching God's Word. Number two, prayer. Prayer. In your personal life, pray. In your home, pray. In your meetings with others, pray. In your public service, devote so much time to prayer that nominal Christians will be bored by talking to the God they only pretend to know. Plenty of other nominal churches they can go to. Don't let Del Rey be one of those where they're comfortably present. Do not tailor your services for people who have no love for God. That's a certain way to kill your church. You want to attract real Christians? 
and hungry non-Christians. And you can do that even by the way you pray in your public services. Diligently call upon God by prayer for a true understanding of his word so that you may be able by the scriptures to teach and to exhort with wholesome doctrine and to withstand and convince those who oppose. Prayer shows our dependence upon God. Prayer honors the Lord. It honors him as the source of all our blessings. It reminds us that converting individuals and growing churches are his works, not ours. Jesus reassures us that if we will abide in him and his words abide in us, that we can ask anything according to his will and that he will give it to us. What a promise. Why do we not avail ourselves of that more? What then should you pray for as you begin your labors here? I have five ideas. Number one, follow Paul's model in his prayers. Go to the New Testament. Look at those prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3, in Philippians 1, in Colossians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1. Allow these prayers to be the starting point for praying Scripture more broadly and consistently and instruct the congregation here on how to pray. Prayer will be one of their most important ministries. You must instruct them in it. Instruct them from God's Word. Two, pray that your preaching of the gospel would be faithful and accurate and clear. Three, pray for increasing maturity of the congregation, that your local church would grow in corporate love and holiness and sound doctrine, such that the testimony of the church in the community would be distinctively pure and attractive to unbelievers. Four, pray for sinners to be converted and for the church to be built up through your preaching of the gospel. I am fine for one or two hundred members of Capitol Hill Baptist Church to come over here. But if this place is filled with people just transferring in from other churches, that is a sad waste of this space. There are sinners that need to hear the gospel and be converted, as all of us have been by God's grace. We want this place filled with them. We want to see them with new life in Christ. Pray that God will honor your ministry here with sinners converted. And number five, pray for opportunities for yourself and other church members to do personal evangelism to that end. Pray that they will not merely think, oh, we've got a good new preacher. I'm going to bring this non-Christian friend to church. Though that's a great thing to do. Please do that. But help them to realize that in a given week, they will see more non-Christians than would be if this place were filled with them. And that they must become faithful stewards of those daily opportunities. Pray that God make that characteristic of this congregation. Pray about such matters publicly in your services. Advertise your dependence on God, which we do every time we pray publicly. It's a great thing to pray. Spend a lot of time in prayer. It just shows people that we know we are dependent upon the Lord. It is not in our own power. And pray personally. I think one of the most practical things you can do for your own personal prayer life and for the prayer lives of other church members is to assemble a church membership directory. My most important book after my Bible, right here, with pictures if possible, so you can actually begin getting names to faces so that everyone in the church can be praying through it page a day. So our church's membership directory has sections in it for members in the area who are unable to attend, 
members out of the area, a page for the elders, deacons, deaconesses, officers, staff, interns, a section for, that records the children of church members, the seminarians we support, supported workers like missionaries, former staff and interns even. So right in the back here is Garrett Kell, former staff member, now senior pastor, Delray Baptist Church, Alexandria, Virginia. Lord willing, we're going to keep praying for Garrett Kell and this ministry at least as long as I have anything to do with it because we have this tool that helps us to pray personally. Realize what a great aid this is. Model for your congregation faithfulness and in praying through this directory in your own devotional times and publicly encourage them to the point where they will smile and make fun of you for doing it. Don't worry about that. Just keep doing it. Let it be a joke so long as it is familiar to them because more people will be doing it that way than if you don't. Let them know they should do this. Friends, if you're not used to doing this, just choose one or two phrases from Scripture that you've been praying about in your own life to pray for the people that you don't know very well that you're praying for. Get to know the sheep in your flock so well that you can pray for them even more particularly than that. And for those you don't know well, just pray what you're reading for yourself in your Bible. I think modeling this kind of praying for others and encouraging the congregation to join you can be a powerful influence for growth in the church. It encourages selflessness, in people's individual prayer lives. So many of our prayer lives are just turned in our own families, our own physical needs, our own jobs, all of which are fine to pray about. But what a small God we worship if that's all we pray about. John Stott tells of being in a, in a village one time in a church and listening from the back to the pastor leading in prayer and everything he prayed about was just for that church and things inside that church's life. And Stott says he left the service sad. Because there he was in a village church listening to prayers clearly to a village God rather than to the prayers that are wide-ranging outside themselves to others and into the lives of others and other congregations and other places and that the gospel would spread. Be a model of that in your own life. Pray like that. Let people associate that kind of praying with you. Give yourself to prayer. Number three, personal discipling relationships. One of the most biblical and valuable uses of your time as a pastor here, Garrett, will be one of those things where I think you're most naturally gifted already anyway, to cultivate personal discipling relationships in which you regularly meet with a few people one-on-one to do them good spiritually. I don't need to say much about this. Congregation, you hurt yourself when you discourage Garrett from having personal friends. He needs them, and as he ministers to them, they will be blessed, and in turn, the whole congregation will be blessed. Pray against any tendency to jealousy or to gossip that you have in this. And members of Delray, join with your pastor in this ministry. And you're here at church on Sunday, after church on Sunday, get to know other people. Get their phone numbers. Call them up to invite them to have coffee with you or have lunch or have them over for dinner. Those who express interest in that and having lunch, will, some of them will be open to getting together again perhaps. As you get to, go them, you get to know them, you might suggest a book that you could read together to discuss on a weekly or every other week meeting or as often as you can. You can meet to discuss the sermon you, you just heard most recently. And those kind of discussions that may feel a little formal and stiff at first often open up into other areas of the person's life for conversation, for encouragement, for correction, for accountability, and prayer. 
You don't need to tell a person that you're discipling them. It's really immaterial who's discipling whom. The point is you're trying to do each other good spiritually. And if you're a humble-hearted Christian, you will learn from any Christian. Pray that God enable you to do that. The goal is to get to know the other person and to love them in a distinctively Christian way by doing them good spiritually. So initiate personal care and concern for others. And this practice of personal discipling is helpful on a number of fronts. I mean, it's obviously a good thing for the person being discipled because they're going to get biblical encouragement and advice from someone who may be a little further on, either in terms of life stages or in terms of their spiritual life and their walk with God. So in this way, discipling can be another avenue through which the Word of God comes to the life of the congregation and is applied to the life of the congregation and is worked out in their lives much more personally than Garrett could ever do from the pulpit. So you extend his work he's done in his study and in praying when you take that freight you get from God's Word in the sermon and then you, not Garrett, you then go into each other's lives with that. Because Garrett can't disciple every member of this church when there are just 50 members let alone when there are 500. So you want to establish this culture from the very beginning. Mark, are you saying I have to be an extrovert to be a godly Christian? No. No, not at all. Friends, God has given you the kind of emotional wallet that he's given you. Whatever you've got, just use for him. He knows what you've got. Don't judge others, and don't worry about being judged by others. Just with whatever he's entrusted to you, you be faithful with that, and pray that God will bless others through that. Members need to know that spiritual maturity is not simply about their own quiet times, but it's about their love for other believers and their concrete expression of that love. I often use the expression to say that, you know, if somebody's not interested in getting up early and going to give a 90-year-old member a ride to church, uh, then I simply don't know what they mean when they call themselves a Christian. They can know all the theology they want. But if their life is not marked by a self-sacrificing love for others, I have no reason to think they're spiritually in any different state than the demons who have superb theology, James tells us, but whose, whose beings are not given in worship to God and poured out in love to others. These kinds of relationships help both spiritual and numerical growth. Garrett, another byproduct of your personal discipling of other members is that it helps break down defensive resistance to your pastoral leadership. Change will always meet resistance. But as you open up your own life to others and they begin to see that you're genuinely concerned for their spiritual welfare, they will be more likely to see you as a caring friend, a spiritual mentor, a godly leader. They'll be less likely to misunderstand your gradual initiatives for biblical change as personal power grabs or self-centered ego trips or overly critical negativism. Developing these types of relationships establishes personal knowledge of yourself, which is helpful in nurturing personal trust of your character and your motives and growing an appropriate level of confidence in your leadership among the congregation. It gradually breaks down the sort of we versus he versus us or we versus him rather character barrier that sadly often subtly stands between the congregation and the pastor and that subtly stands in the way of biblical growth and change and a word to the congregation here jeremy mclean one of our members who's sitting here today someplace 
right there, was in a conversation the other day, and one of the other interns, I think, maybe somebody else here, was commenting on how they enjoyed the culture at CHBC of the elders caring so well for the congregation. And I do praise God for the elders, as David said earlier, they're gifts of Christ to his church. But Jeremy wisely made the observation, because he's been at our church for a few years, he said, what you also have to have to make that work is members willing to be shepherded. Because it doesn't matter if you have a pastor who's reaching out with spiritual initiative. If those members aren't interested in that, his reaching out won't do any good. Pray that God cause the members of Delray Baptist Church to hunger for him, to long to grow in him. What a gift are godly caring elders and a godly caring congregation that wants to be built up in Christ and matured in him. Garrett and Delray, give yourselves to doing each other good spiritually. Number four, patience. Patience. When I began my ministry across the river, I waited about three months before I preached my first Sunday morning sermon. I simply attended. I'd asked for this time and conversations that were held before I arrived, and when I explained my reasons, they agreed. I meant to show respect to the congregation, to understand them, gave me time to learn what they were accustomed to. It showed me that I wasn't in a hurry. It showed them, rather, that I wasn't in a hurry to to change everything. I realize not all of us have the luxury of waiting three months to preach after our arrival, but Garrett, this congregation has lovingly afforded you a similar kindness. You have been quietly on staff here for a month and a half and haven't even had to preach one sermon during that time. You've been kind of getting settled, getting to know the lay of the land. Brother, that's not a bad pace to begin at. Run at a pace the congregation can keep up with. Lord willing, there'll be a good bit of time. Of course, there are some things you might need to change rather quickly. I know that you guys are in foundational conversations right now and you're building and that's something deep and permanent for the future. By all means, you, you make hard decisions even if you have to at this point. But as much as possible, changes that you have to bring about, do quietly. Do with an encouraging smile. Not loudly with a disapproving frown. We are indeed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's true. That's in the Bible. But you'll notice in 2 Timothy 4, we're to do it, he says, with great patience and instruction. It's amazing how much people will agree once you teach them from God's Word. Give time to teach. Make sure the changes you want to implement are biblical or at least prudent. Then patiently teach people about them from God's Word before you expect them to embrace the changes you're encouraging. This patient instruction is the biblical way to sow broad agreement around a biblical agenda among the flock of God. And once this broad agreement is sown, change is less likely to be divisive and unity less prone to fracture. As you work for change, work also to extend genuine Christian goodwill to others. Do not wait for people to earn your trust. Be willing to be abused. Extend trust and then see what they do with it. We read in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. 
with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I think the key to displaying and actually having this kind of patience is to have a right perspective on time, eternity, and success. These things are rare, I find, among pastors today. The right perspective on time, eternity, and success. On time. I think most of us only think about five or maybe even ten years if we're really you know, far-sighted, we think. But I think patience in the pastorate requires thinking in terms of 20, 30, 40, even 50 years of ministry. I remember interviewing John MacArthur, and he told about a kind of revolt on his staff after he'd been there five years that would have ended a lot of people's ministries. But here he is 35 or 40 years later still in that same church with God's amazing blessings there. Uh, Today, October 14th, is actually the anniversary of John Gill's death. He served his church for 51 years as the pastor. Now, given that you're already 34 and just about to be 35, I don't know you want to keep going until you're 86. That might not bless the congregation. I'll try it out across the river and let you know how it goes. But I think you do want to think longer than most people usually do. You want to be aware, like I mentioned earlier in this message, that unless the Lord comes back, there's going to be somebody who's going to replace you. It's not Garrett's flock, it's God's flock. You're here temporarily caring for it. You want to make the next guy's job as easily as you possibly can by building them into the Lord, into his word, into his people, into him. Yes, you have a big personality. Yes, people will be attracted to you. Use that for the Lord's good. Be careful how you do it. Use it in a way that keeps in mind the long haul. And just to say this once and publicly, not that I think it's a particular temptation for you, understand that Del Rey is not meant to be here just as a brief stopping point while you're moving up some ladder. That would be a gross, carnal, ungodly, and all too common way these days to think. Are you building a congregation or a career? Stay with Delray Baptist Church. Keep teaching. Keep modeling. Keep leading. Keep loving. So that's time. Think in a longer time horizon. Number two, eternity. I think that helps you to be patient, thinking about eternity correctly. As pastors, one day we will all be held accountable before God for the way we led and fed his lambs. We know that from Hebrews 13, 17. We know that from James 3, 1. All our ways are before him. He'll know. He'll know if we used the congregation simply to build a career. He'll know if we led them or left them prematurely for our own convenience and benefit. He'll know if we drove the sheep too hard. Shepherd the flock in a way that you will not be ashamed on the day of the Lord. Colossians 3, 23. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. If you need encouragement in church history on this, look at Jonathan Edwards' faithful serving of the church even after it fired him. 
He continued to faithfully fill their pulpit at their request for a number of months. What would it have been like getting in that pulpit? Praise God for his faithfulness. He cared more for the Lord than for the approval of a congregation. You know, I'm certainly a congregationalist. In the New Testament, the congregation seems to have the final say. That by no means means that congregational, congregations are inerrant. Congregations do stupid things all the time. Your job is to pray for them and to try to lead them and teach them so that they'll do that as little as possible. And a third thing, so time and eternity, but also success. If you think about success correctly, that will help you to have an appropriate patience. Garrett, be careful in this. Here, I do think you will be tempted by your flesh. If you define success in terms of size, your desire for numerical growth will probably outrun your patience with the congregation, maybe even with your brother elders, perhaps even your fidelity to biblical methods. Either your ministry among the people will be cut short, you'll be fired, or you'll resort to methods which will draw a crowd without preaching the true gospel. You'll trip over the hurdle of your own ambition. But if you define success in terms of faithfulness, then you are in a position to persevere because you are released from the demand of immediate observable results. I'm taking a lot of these people back with me across the river next Sunday, right? Some of these people are here just as loners. Don't worry about that. You keep preaching faithfully. And when you look out in a month from now and things aren't as big as you hoped they would be, take that as God's kind killing of your flesh. Don't worry, he's not going to fulfill his good promises. He's going to be really good. You just trust him that he, his timing will be perfect. And guard your own heart against defining success in terms of something that's immediately observable. Wed your heart to faithfulness. That puts you in that position to persevere. It seems ironic at first, but I think trading in size for faithfulness as the yardstick for success is often the path to legitimate church growth. I mean even numerical growth. God is happiest, I think, to entrust his flock to those shepherds who aren't going to fleece them and who are going to do things his way. Confidence in the Christian ministry doesn't come from personal competence or charisma or the experience you've already had as seven years pastoring another church. Nor does it come from having the right programs in place or you know, jumping on the bandwagon. Hey, CHBC seems to be doing well. I'm going to do that kind of thing. It doesn't even come from having a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. Much like Joshua, our confidence is to be in the presence and power and promises of God. He is sending us up against a a host of spiritually dead people who at the same time have life enough to hate the truth. And he is telling us as a whole flock of sheep to charge the wolves. And as we do... Wolves, by God's amazing grace, will turn into sheep. You're supposed to lead that charge. That's what you're called to do. Success is your leading that charge. Pray for confidence for becoming and being a pastor that depends upon the power of the Spirit to make you adequate through the equipping ministry of God's Word. Think of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God 
who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And how does the Spirit make us adequate? By what instrument? Well, it's not a program. It's God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, that's you, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The one thing necessary is the power of God's Word. And that's why preaching and prayer will always be paramount, no matter what fad tops the charts. Stake your ministry on the power of the gospel. Success is faithfulness in these simple matters. It's staying focused on these in the whirl of competing priorities that is a pastor's life. So be patient. In summary, preach and pray, love and stay. That's a summary of the message. Preach and pray, love and stay. You want to know how you can pray for Garrett? Pray those four things. That he will be faithful to do those four things. Preach and pray love, and stay. Garrett, I want to give you a break for just a moment. I want to look at the congregation and preach to the congregation. Just a word to you. I've spent most of my time preaching to Garrett, but you too are being given a precious stewardship. May I simply say a word to you about money, about marriage, and about moderation. Money, marriage, and moderation. Look at how hard I work to make this simple and clear and memorable. Money, marriage, and moderation. First, about money. If you look back here in 1 Peter 5, do you notice there in verse 2 that little phrase in 1 Peter 5 and verse 2? Not greedy for money? I can't tell you how many times I've heard congregations say about their pastors, we'll keep him poor and God will keep him humble. That's a suspicious and an ungracious attitude to have towards someone you would call as your pastor. Would you entrust him with your souls, but not with the resources God's given you? What does that say about what you really value? Galatians 6.6 tells you to share all good things with your instructor. Garrett is your primary instructor. Realize that his prospering as your pastor is not being forbidden here by this warning about greed. Pray and act so that his dear children will have nothing but good things to say about the way Delray Baptist Church treated their father. Could I share with you one thing the congregation over at Capitol Hill has done so well for Connie and I? They have been generous. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that anyone who does not care for his immediate family is worse than an unbeliever. Care well for the Kells. Entrust them with all you can and watch them in the model of stewardship they are of it. You won't regret the culture of generosity that that engenders in your church. That's about money. Two, about marriage. Second, The main way you can care for your new pastor is to care for his family. I'm talking about in practical terms. 
You know, if Satan wants to take a pastor out, he merely needs to aim at his wife. Because you take the pastor's wife out and you got the pastor. Because you see, you can get another pastor. Carrie only has one husband. Garrett has vowed publicly before God to have a certain role with Carrie until he dies. You should help them fulfill those vows. So Del Rey, care for your pastor's family. Let Carrie do whatever she wants to do. As long as she is supporting not Del Rey Baptist Church. No, as long as she is supporting Garrett and her family. Don't put pressure on Carrie to care for the church directly instead of her husband and family. Celebrate limits that Garrett puts on Carrie's involvement. It might be wise for Garrett to tell Carrie, I don't want you doing anything at church at least for the first year we're there till we learn a, a, a rhythm about it. Don't push against that. If he does something like that, celebrate the wisdom of it. Congregation, Carrie loves you best by loving her husband best. Never forget that. A last word with you, dear congregation, and that is moderate. Moderate. Be moderate in your expectations of Garrett. Even as gifted and eager a young pastor as he may be. Let me share with you the words of one faithful pastor who labored for decades over a congregation and when he was retiring preached a final time to them before he handed it over to the next pastor that they had already called. And this is what the outgoing pastor said about the new pastor instructing the congregation. For your own sake and your children's sake, cherish and revere him whom you have chosen to be your pastor. Already he loves you, and he will soon love you as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It will be equally your duty and your interest to make his labors as pleasant to him as possible. Do not demand too much. Do not require visits too frequent. Should he spend in this way half of the time which some demand, he must wholly neglect his studies, if not sink early under the burden. Do not report to him all the unkind things which may be said against him, nor frequently in his presence even allude to opposition, if opposition should arise. Though he is a minister of Christ, consider that he has the feelings of a man. Garrett does have remarkably broad shoulders, but there is enough sin in any single congregation to break the spirit of the strongest pastor's spirit if not sustained by God's Spirit and the congregation's wise kindness. Moderate your expectations, Delray. Shift your dependency from Garrett to God in prayer. Well, I've spoken for quite a while now, and you've been very patient. I don't know if I've lived up to my reputation for hour-and-a-half sermons. Preaching, praying, personal discipling, and patience. One day before the American Revolution, there was a day of remarkable gloom and darkness and eclipse over New England. It was known for years afterwards simply as the dark day, a day when the light of the sun was extinguished at midday. The legislature of Connecticut was in session, 
And as its members saw the unexpected and unaccountable darkness coming on, they shared in the general awe and terror. Many supposed this was the last day, this was the day of judgment. Someone in the legislature, in their consternation of this hour, moved that they adjourn in light of what was happening. Then there arose an old Puritan legislator, Mr. Dan Davenport of Stamford. And he said that if the last day had come, he desired to be found at his place doing his duty. And therefore he asked, moved, that candles be brought in so the house could proceed with its duty. There was a quietness in that man's mind, the quietness of heavenly wisdom and inflexible willingness to obey present duty. Garrett, you and I as pastors should do our duty in all things like that old Puritan. We can't do more. We should never wish to do less. The ministry has private discouragements and public disappointments aplenty. In God's kindness, too, it often has compensating blessings, even in this life. But we will never be faithful ministers in anything other than appearance if we only consider the ministry in terms of this life. And so I love that quotation of John Brown in a letter of paternal counsels to one of his pupils newly ordained over a small congregation. I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified if your congrega- that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. We must remember what momentous work we're about and that one day, as we're just about to sing, these clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. Live and minister in light of that day. Let's pray. Lord God, your blessings to us have been full. Your kindness to us is evident. We do pray that you would make Garrett faithful. We pray for each one of us that we would be faithful with every day of life you entrust to us. Make us faithful. Bless this congregation. Pray that many would come to know you because of the ministry of your gospel here. Pray that many would be built up in the faith and encouraged in Christ. And we pray that you would do this all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.